Our message this morning is entitled, To Love Mercy. Last week, as we were finishing up our series on salvation, the fact that as far as human effort, salvation is an impossibility. The disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? He says, with men it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. And from that passage, we began to consider salvation. We are saved from death and sin to life in Christ. We're created unto good works that we should walk in them. And God calls on us to be people that honor Him and serve Him. Last week, we considered a passage from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Now, if you were here with us on Wednesday night, or you watch that live stream, you know that our message Wednesday night was a study an overview of the book of Micah itself, the things that he taught, his ministry, when he served the Lord and proclaimed God's word to God's people. And so we begin this morning back in the book of Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. This statement in Micah 6, 8, we'll read it. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. This statement, Micah 6, 8, is one of two that we considered last Sunday that explicitly teach us, explicitly tell us certain traits, certain behaviors that God desires or requires, I should say, of us. When we were talking about salvation and being created unto good works, and this is a point that we emphasized the last two weeks, but it's worth emphasizing again, we don't have to wonder, what does God expect of me? We don't have to think, well, I love God, and I know I should be zealous, so I'm going to sit down and come up with ways that I think I could live or things that I think I could do, and in doing that, God would be happier with me than otherwise. We know what God expects of us because God has given us his word. And this passage, as well as the one that we looked at in Deuteronomy, is interesting because you have a man of God saying, this is literally what God requires of you. Literally what God requires of you. Now the Bible is full of things that God requires of us. And last week, before we dug into this text and the one from Deuteronomy, we read and did our very best to not comment a whole lot on several lists of commendable traits and behaviors from Scripture. This book is devoted to telling us what God expects of us. You can summarize all of that with love God and love your neighbor. And there are things we do because we love God. There are things that we don't do because we love God. There are things that we do because we love our neighbor, and there are things that we don't do because we love our neighbor. But this book tells us, it informs us, it thoroughly furnishes us unto all good works. And here in Micah 6, 8, we read, The Lord requires some things of us to do justly, to be equitable and fair, and not to lie or cheat or steal, not to skirt justice as it were, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. It's a second statement that I want to focus on today, in particular, loving mercy. So our message is entitled, To Love Mercy. As I considered this 
thought. It, it was amazing. By the time we were in the parking lot last week, we were talking, me and another, about the things that God requires of us and how so many times, if you notice in the Beatitudes, if you notice as we read the fruit of the Spirit, and even here in this list today, much of what we read and considered were character traits or things that take place more in our heart and our mind that have an effect on the way that we deal with people. But most of what we considered you might call internals, and that's maybe my word, but it's a way that I find helpful to think about it. In other words, what we focused on last week isn't so much us doing something, but the way that we think and govern ourselves, the way that we are in the mind and in the heart. The mind and the heart has been changed in the new birth, God takes away our hard and stony heart. He gives us a heart of flesh. He writes his laws upon our heart. He circumcises our heart. There are several different expressions in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament that express that thought of a changed heart. And so most of what we considered had to do with what's on the inside more than what's on the outside. Now, to be very clear, whatever is on the inside is going to end up on the outside if you give it enough time. What do you mean by that? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means that if you're around somebody enough, what is on the inside of their heart is eventually going to come out of their mouth. And what he's speaking of is words. The tongue reveals so many times what is on the heart. The tongue reveals what is on the heart. You don't have to wait for me to speak. I have this terrible personality trait of whatever I'm thinking is written on my face. And I don't realize it. I don't, I'm not thinking make a really grumpy face when someone says something theologically inaccurate. But it happens. If I'm about to get into mischief, I think you all know me long enough, I get a look on my face. And you know... Something's about to happen, and at least to this guy, it's going to be funny. It may not be funny to anybody else. Some of us wear our heart on our face, but if you're around someone long enough, you know that what is on the heart is going to come out the mouth. And so much of what we considered last week is what's on the inside more than what's on the outside that we're doing. Now, what's on the outside matters, but as we'll see from today, as humans, with a bent towards legalism, we focus on the external, and this is something that I think we could call religiosity. We like religiosity. It makes me look religious. And if I look religious, people think I'm religious, I feel religious, I feel holy, I feel good about myself, when really what God has expressed in his word for us to be concerned with are, again, things on the inside that have an effect on the outside. If I'm love mercy, it's going to have an effect on how I deal with people, but that starts with not me pretending to be charitable or gracious to people, but that starts with me genuinely loving mercy with a kind and a tender heart. The Hebrew word here in Micah 6.8 carries the connotation of showing kindness to another. Showing kindness to another. In fact, this word, mercy, the word that translates mercy, translates at times goodness and kindness. 
And it's simply being nice to someone. So when you think about what does it mean to be merciful, I think we all know what it means. And it's come to, it's built into, it's developed into an entire theological concept from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Part of that definition that I want you to have in your mind is simply to show kindness to other people. And so to be a merciful person means that I'm a person that shows kindness and goodness to those that are around me. And God requires of us, if we want to please him, to love mercy. He wants us to love being kind to people. And if you love it, it isn't feigned, it isn't fake, it isn't pretend, but you legitimately relish in being merciful and kind to people. If you want to know one of the secrets to having a blessed life, it is to love mercy. Nothing is more destructive and damaging to a person than bitterness or vengeance or jealousy or wrath or cruelty. And these are traits that are blossoming in our culture at present. Those are the traits people walk in each and every day. It's what we see in the comment sections of social media, guilty as anybody else. It's what we see on the statuses of people and the tweets of people. We see it every day. We walk in it. You see it when people are angry in traffic. Do not cut my wife off and slow down. You will learn real quick that that makes her angry. Honk. Lights flashing, that vehicle swerving back and forth, or fists in the air. Now, I'm being hypothetical, of course. That's never happened. It's so easy, it's so easy to be that way. Now, by the way, if you want to see me maybe fall into that pattern, just be in the car with me as I'm giving a driving lesson or something. Pray for my kids because they have to live with me. But Scripture says that we are to love mercy, to love mercy. The New Testament word refers to showing compassion or pity. Compassion or pity. The word compassion comes from the word passion. And when we say passion today, we have reference to a person's strong emotions. He's very passionate about music. He's very passionate about art. He's very passionate to his children or to his wife. Maybe they have a passionate embrace. But the word passion in Scripture, particularly in the King James Bible, means suffering. It doesn't have reference to strong emotion, but it means suffering. In Acts 1, when you read of the passion of Christ, passion there doesn't mean the emotion of Christ, the strong feelings of Christ, but the suffering of Christ. Compassion, then, means to suffer with someone. You not only sympathize for them, but you have empathy towards their suffering. You weep with them that weep. You rejoice with them that rejoice, according to the book of Romans chapter 12. And so, the New Testament word means to show compassion or pity. One of the words that I thought about this week was pitiful. When we say pitiful, we mean that, you know, he's just in a terrible, pathetic little state. (laughs) What a pitiful little attempt. But pitiful means that which is to be pitied. 
And so in Scripture, pity and pitiful and thoughts such as that, well, it's one that needs mercy, one that needs to have compassion, worthy to be pitied. In our usage today, many times the word mercy is used with reference to providence. It's used with reference to deliverance and scripture. God is rich in mercy, and so many times in the Old Testament, I think this word is used some 268 times, you find references to God having mercy upon people, storehouses of richness and mercy where he provides for them, he delivers them, he cares for them, and even at times when he spares people from things that is within his power to do. He might spare someone. He might have mercy upon someone when they beg his forgiveness. This is why we often say that, and this is familiar, we've quoted this recently, grace is getting what we don't deserve. God's grace is his unmerited favor. Mercy, however, is not getting what we do deserve. And so when someone deserves to be, please understand this, the wages of sin is death. God would be just in obliterating this world and casting every single human being into the lake of fire based upon what they have done and they have earned. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God would be just in casting every one of us away from him and from his presence for all of eternity. That would not be injustice. That would not be when one is punished more than it deserves. But that is exactly what we deserve. We deserve wrath. Now, praise God, he sent his son into the world to die for us and to pay that penalty and suffer what we deserve upon the cross. And he did this, as we'll see as we bring this thought to a close today, because he has mercy towards us. You know, God is a God of judgment and justice. Justice could not be swept under the rug. For God's mercy to be enjoyed by me and you. For us to be with him in glory, forgiven for our sins, someone or something must have paid the price because God is holy. If the sin has been committed, God's wrath must be appeased for the sin. And as we read in Isaiah chapter 53, yet it pleased the father to bruise him, his suffering servant. All we like sheep had gone astray and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, because God had grace and love and mercy for us, suffered on the cross as if he had lived my wretched life and your wretched life, that he can have mercy on us without damaging or offending his judgment and his justice. He is immutable. His traits will stand and... Because of that, his wrath had to be appeased. Mercy, then, isn't at the expense of God's justice, is it? God's justice had to be satisfied for his mercy to be given to us. And so grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. The Oxford English Dictionary of Historic 
principles defines this English word mercy as forbearance and compassion shown by one person to another who is in his power and who has no claim to receive kindness. Now that last little expression is one that's incredible when we think about God's mercy for us. Who has no claim to receive kindness. In other words, mercy is something you absolutely do not deserve. Please understand how important it is to use words in accord with their definition and how important it is to define words so we understand scripture, we understand sermons, we understand writings, we can have a good, firm, growing, working knowledge of the concepts of Scripture through definitions. Words have meanings. And God gave us His Word. He is the living Word after all. He gave us His Word and it's precise to a jot and a tittle. We know that every iota is right and proper. It benefits us to learn the definitions of these words. Forbearance and compassion shown by one person to another who is in his power. That means that God has power over us. And it means when we have mercy on others, we have power over them in a sense. They've offended us. They've done wrong to us. They're under our power in a sense. And has no claim to receive kindness. We had no claim to receive kindness to God. When we are merciful to others, they have no power No claim to receive kindness from us. We're literally giving mercy to people when they don't deserve mercy. Now again, this isn't something that we're naturally good at. Those of you with small children see this depicted. They they don't have to be taught to punch somebody. They don't have to be taught to bite somebody. Years ago, they got this crazy idea in their head that human beings come into this world as a blank slate or maybe even good, and the only reason kids grow up and do violent things is because, well, their parents let them watch Bugs Bunny growing up on Saturday morning. Now, at four decades into this life, I grew up watching Bugs Bunny on Saturday morning. And they had guns, and they had bombs, and they had violence, and they had rockets, and they... They had a coyote that tried to get a roadrunner, and he tried to feed him poison and explosives, and he would paint little tunnels on the side of the wall, and then the, you know, the, the coyote does it. The roadrunner runs through it, and the coyote smacks into it. He might fall off a cliff, and a boulder land on his head. And I tell you, that was good, wholesome entertainment to a couple of little boys. And the idea began to spread around that if we could you know, just get rid of that sort of thing that Human beings would be kind and there wouldn't be violence in the world. We'd have so much less violence if we didn't have all of this, this Looney Tune stuff for kids when they're growing up. But you know, my children knew how to bite about the time they grew teeth. And when they got mad at you, they'd bite you. Put them over my knee and smack their rear end. I won't tell you that Maybe with one of them, they were gently bitten back just to show that it hurts. Don't do that. That's something parents used to do. They called DHR on you for that. Now he he bit his kid. Well, they're biting everybody and drawing blood. So after they learned it hurt, they stopped doing it. We don't have to learn wrath. We don't have to learn violence. It's bound in the heart. And unless God writes his laws on the heart, there's nothing tempering it in a man, except for the fear of punishment. 
which is why God gave government, Romans chapter 13. We are to grow in mercy. We, to be merciful, have power over the person. That, that means to say, and I hope you understand what, what I mean by that in this definition, a person who is in his power, if someone offends you and you have the power to chew them out, to run them off, to get them fired, to run them out of the church... Now, if somebody abuses you, please call the police. We're not talking about crimes that violate civil criminal law. But there are times that people are within our power in that sense. They've rightly offended us. And what God calls on us to do is to show mercy. To show mercy. They have no claim for kindness. Neither did you with Christ. And as God showed you mercy, show them mercy. Definition 1B, God's pitiful forbearance towards his creatures. Now, think about it from this perspective. While we don't always love being merciful, we all love thinking about God's mercy towards us. And I think that dwelling on and meditating upon God's mercy to us ought to make us want to be more merciful to others. Knowing that God had all right to cast me into the lake of fire for eternity and punish me forever. And yet he chose to send his son into the world to die for me because he was merciful and loved me and gracious when I was even his enemy. Well, that ought to make me want to treat other people different. I ought to love mercy, not only God's mercy to me, but I ought to love being merciful to others. And again, even in the Old Testament... This is what God requires of us, to love mercy. Self-reflection and introspection. Am I a person that loves mercy? Well, I'm always getting mad at people. Do I hold grudges on people? Am I displaying bitterness to people? I think that one of Brother Hewlin's favorite sayings is that holding a grudge against someone else is like wanting them to, uh, to die so you drink the poison yourself. In other words, the only person that's hurt by that is you, and that is so true. That's a true proverb. If I'm angry and holding a grudge at someone, I'm drinking the poison wanting them to suffer the consequences, and all I'm doing is hurting myself. It's a poison in our hearts. If I'm bitter, if I'm angry, if I'm easy to be offended, then... I need to work out my mercy, as it were. Rachel and I try to work out a couple of times a week. And as you work out, you might start off with just a little bit of weight, and then you want to add a little more weight. As that becomes easy, you add a little more weight. We know what it means to lift weights and to exercise. Well, Scripture uses that word exercise a few times. With respect to our growth in grace, we grow through reason of use. We grow through exercise. When someone does something today that bothers you, let me give you the good opportunity to exercise. Instead of getting offended, show them mercy. There's an old statement, water off a duck's back. Let it roll off your back like water off a duck to show mercy. God requires of us to not only show it, but to love it. He requires us to love mercy. God's pitiful Forbearance towards his creatures. 
And lastly, number two, mercy is the disposition to forgive. The disposition to forgive. So if I'm a merciful person, I'm a forgiving person. If I'm an unforgiving person, I can't be a merciful person. These two go hand in hand. Where you find one, you find the other. If you don't find one, you won't find the other. And again, I have to give this caveat. If someone is abusing you or they're hurting you, if they're being cruel to you, if they break the law, then they have not only offended you and they've offended God, but they've offended the state. They're guilty of committing a crime. You can forgive someone while they sit in jail for committing a crime against you. And at the same time, just because you forgive someone if they are a chronic abuser, it doesn't mean you invite them over to supper every night. There are people that you can say, I forgive you, I love you, but I'm not going to subject myself to any more of that. I love you from way over here. And so some people we love from way over there. You say that it, we have a great long-distance relationship. I love that guy five counties away. <laughs> and there, there are people that become that way with us in our lives. We just have a mutual understanding. You know, we're just not, we're like oil and water here. Positive and negative. We just don't. We're repelling forces, and if we get too close, they're sparks. So, you know, I forgive. There's no hard feelings, but that doesn't mean that we're going to go bowling. I don't bowl anyway, but doesn't mean we're going to go hang out. Now, as you can see, a lot of these definitions and these concepts overlap with the definition of charity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's one thing that I reflected on this week. To have mercy, to show kindness and forbearance and pitiful forbearance and the disposition to forgive. 1 Corinthians 13, charity suffereth long, is kind. Remember one of the definitions and one of the alternate translations of that Hebrew word is kindness. Charity is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, rejoiceth in, in truth, believeth all things, beareth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity and mercy blend together in Scripture. So many of these concepts blur together as you look at them because they overlap. They overlap together. In addition, last week to this text from Micah, we looked at a passage in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now these Beatitudes so oftentimes have an application here as a practical matter and then an application as it relates to glory. People who are merciful have the sweet assurance of God in their heart that God also has mercy for them. So many of these declarative statements aren't written as propositions, but simply declarative statements of assurance, God comforting the hearts of his people. John 3.16 is a great example of that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. A person who walks in mercy has assurance that God has mercy for him as well. But there's also a very practical lesson to this. The more merciful I am to other people, the more merciful God will be with me in my day-to-day -day life. In other words, if I am harsh to people, if I am cold to people, if I am callous to people, if I'm bitter to people, if I'm vindictive to people, then I can expect all of those 
behaviors and traits and emotions and disposition to fall right back in my lap when God deals with me. You see, we're God's children, and even though we don't have to live under the fear of dying and go to hell because we know that Christ has taken away our sins, we know that he has saved us, the Lord knoweth them that are his, nothing can separate us from the love of God, they're kept in his hand, as John 10 says, I also know that as a child, the Lord chastens every son whom he receives. And I know as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent, Revelation 3. I know that God deals with me as with a son. When I'm an obedient son, I have his fellowship and I have blessings in my life in a spiritual sense. If I am disobedient, God chastens me. Now, parents chasten their children to the best of their ability if they're a good parent, and it's imperfect, and the language of the book of Hebrews refers directly to that. In our frailty, we try to teach our kids right from wrong. We try to discipline them. God is a perfect father, and he chastens perfectly. He chastens perfectly. Those who show mercy will be shown mercy. There's a few other passages that bring that point to our attention in different ways in the, the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. This is simply saying, and I've seen the meme where you have judge not, and then every other verse is scribbled out with a sharpie, and it's pretty much the American perspective on this passage. Well, the point of judge not, that ye be not judged, is so often paraphrased, judge not lest ye be judged, but it's judge not that ye be not judged, is that however we judge, God will judge us here in our lives. So if I'm harsh to people, then God is going to be more harsh, if you'll use that word, with me. If I am more forgiving and merciful and kind and charitable to people... God is more forgiving and merciful and charitable and kind to me in my personal day-to-day -day life. We're talking about something here in the world, not as it relates to glory. With what judgment I judge, the same I shall be judged. Scripture so many times points out the hypocrisy of judging someone for something that you privately do. And Paul in Romans 2 says, if you condemn another, you condemn yourself when you're guilty of doing the same things. A thought that I like to have in mind when I think and I espouse a judgmental course of action. Let's say someone has abused a child. Well, judge not. Oh, no, judge. Yes, please, judge. Judge. Yeah, well, what judgment you judge, the same is the judgment wherewith you'll be just. Yes, if, if I abuse a child, I want you to kill me. Okay? You really want to know? Under the jail, and I don't mean in the basement. All right? So, yeah, with what judgment I judge, the same will be meted back to me? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll agree to that right now. If somebody is abusing someone or hurting someone, if somebody steals from you, I want them to go to jail, fully understanding that if I steal, I need to go to jail too. I'm fine with that. And that's the point of this passage. Another point of this passage is, Why behold the mote that's in thy brother's eye a speck, but consider not the beam that's in thy own? To worry about my own holiness and my own sinfulness 
rather than obsessing about the sinfulness of other people. Because that's what the Pharisees do. That's what the judges do. And the world is full of them. The world is full of them. They, they call themselves discernment ministries. I, I've been blocked from, from interacting with some of these people because they, they really serve to be the national inquirer of Christianity. And they exist just to slam and slander other people. And many times what they say isn't necessarily inaccurate. It's just, look, I'm pastoring a church here in Huntsville, Alabama. There are 55 members of this church. And beyond that, there's a good 15 people who come here. And and we never have everybody here the same day. Wouldn't it be great if we did? But we don't. That's okay. But we have 55 members and another 10 or 15 people that we love that that are apart here, and I've, I've gone out and lead an after-school devotion with some kids, and we've got a radio program. I don't have time to worry about what people are doing three states away, getting mad at some other preacher, but that's what discernment ministries do. We ought to consider this beam in our own eye before trying to pick the speck out of somebody else's. Not only is that a case of ignoring big problems in my life while focusing on smaller problems in other people's lives. If I have a beam in my eye, do I have the clarity of vision to get the speck out of somebody else's? That beam is blocking everything, isn't it? Vision is something that I have come to appreciate now that it's gotten a lot worse than it used to be, especially at night. I can't see to drive at night. Everything looks blurry and black. It's like there's a disconnect somewhere. I'm like, what happened to my vision? I can see really good like this distance, and every one of you has a blurry face. If you ever wonder, why doesn't Brother Ben really stare into our eyes when he preaches to us? I can't see your eyes. (laughs) I need glasses. I've got blurry faces. I can kind of tell if you're smiling, especially now that we're not wearing masks. That was pretty much miserable, but anyway, we survived. Praise God. This text tells us that whatever disposition we have to others is what we're going to have given back to us. And so what of a good reason to be merciful to people and to love mercy than the fact that there's a direct correlation in the way that we treat others and the way that we will be treated. In the model prayer in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And after this prayer, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, these are this is addressed to people who can call God their Father. So, this is a model prayer for God's children. What happens when our Father doesn't forgive us our trespasses? This isn't a hell lesson. This is a, I get a spanking lesson. Again, the chastening that God the Father gives all of his children. If I'm forgiving, God will be forgiving to me. If I am hard and harsh and unmerciful and unforgiving, then I can expect to receive the same in my life, and that ought to terrify that ought to terrify each and every one of us. All right, let's turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 23. As we think about loving mercy... I want to give you an example in the negative, a group of people who did not love mercy. And there's a couple of different passages from Matthew's gospel that I want to share with you as Jesus interacts with these people. So our next teaching comes, our next teaching about mercy comes from Jesus' expose of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to, notice it in verse 1, 
the multitude. This is not one of the private sermons to Jesus' disciples. There were several of those. You got the upper room discourse. As Jesus leaves here, he talks to his disciples. He gives the Olivet Discourse, and that was spoken primarily to his disciples. There were a lot of messages that were spoken to his disciples. Some messages were spoken generally, and he addresses the wicked of this world in those messages. Here, in Matthew 23, Jesus publicly addresses the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we say Pharisee today, and it's a very negative thing. If somebody walked up to you this afternoon and said, you are such a Pharisee, you wouldn't say, well, why, thank you. I appreciate that. But in the first century, if you were a Pharisee, you were a member of the who's who of Judaism. The Sadducees were the theological liberals. They were the skeptics. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the conservatives. They were the people who claimed to adhere to the Word of God. In actuality, they didn't. They turned Judaism, as one article I read once said, from a religion of sacrifice to a religion of law. They took the focus off the sacrifices, pointing to Christ, and put the focus on the law, and it turned them into a bunch of self-righteous, judgmental legalists. If you want to break down, I've got a breakdown of this passage, the ways to identify and a Phariseeism in our own lives, and I think we end that article with, am I a Pharisee? You know, we can examine our own lives and see if we find ourselves living and doing what the Pharisees did. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus is publicly rebuking the Pharisees. It is painful. They are offended. This is a great example of sometimes to be a spokesman for God doesn't always mean you have to be nice. Because Jesus is not nice here. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. This means that they say one thing and they do another. They're pretenders, they're fakes, and they're abusers. For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. The weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. That statement is interesting. It's unique to this expression. The weightier matters of the law. Now, reading some commentaries, Gil, for instance, he makes the point that to the first century Jew, there were laws that were more crucial and more important in their mind than other laws. And so, perhaps following along with this statement, Jesus turns that around on them and tells them that the weightier matters, the more pressing things that they ought to be doing, are judgment, mercy, and faith. Now, that sounds remarkably similar to Micah's what does God require of you statement, doesn't it? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. How do you walk humbly with your God? You do it by faith. We walk not by sight, we walk by what? By faith. The just shall live by faith. So perhaps what Jesus is quoting here, perhaps he's using that passage in Micah 6, 8. 
The weightier matters are to do justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God by faith. Now, you might say that one criticism he has of them, and he has many, and you can go read them. It's a sermon series all by itself. But one criticism that he has for them is their devotion to external works that glorified the doer in the sight of others. Many of which were mere traditions. Now, there were tithes in the Old Testament. But you don't find a tithe of these herbs. Why then do they give tithes of mint and anise and cumin? Because that was the tradition of the elders. And so they're tithing in accord with the tradition of the elders, but they're actually omitting and ignoring the weightier matters of the law, things that God would prefer that they do, judgment, mercy, and faith. This idea of the tradition of the elders and how they make void the commandments of God and instead supplement the traditions of the elders, this is a problem that they have. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus rebukes them for that. They come up to him criticizing him. Your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Now listen, I wash my hands before I eat, but not because I think it makes me holy. (laughs) I wash my hands before I eat because of germs. Uh, The types of germs that you get that you get by eating are the types that give you stomach viruses. And I don't want a stomach virus and neither do you. So I wash my hands before I eat, but it doesn't make me any more holy than anybody else. So this is a matter of holiness. Jesus turns it around on them. And he said, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And then he goes on and gives them examples. He says in verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What's the problem? External outward religion for show rather than inward religion. Their heart was far from God, but they drew nigh to him with their lips. This was the sin of Israel. This was the sin of Israel. And it was a problem. You notice he quotes Isaiah. It was a problem in Isaiah's day. In fact, when God begins through Moses speaking to them, he as much says that. You're going to pretend to worship. You're going to fall into idolatry. I'm going to have to judge you. Kind of hate it, but it's the way that it's going to be. You read the end of Deuteronomy. There are passages in that when God's like, I know this people. I know what they're going to do. I know they're going to depart because they've been that way the entire time. Isaiah reflects on it in his ministry. Jesus quotes it here. Nothing's changed. The heart's far from him, but they draw an eye with their lips. It's pretend. They liked the outward show of religion because of the reputation, the clout, the religiosity. Sometimes we fall into that trap of liking religiosity. All right, let me find something churchy to do for the religiosity so I can feel like I'm doing something religious and holy and it makes me feel good. Sometimes that happens and we should mortify that. They pay tithe. Of these three things, mint, anise, and cumin. Now, this gives us an opportunity just to briefly mention tithing. Is tithing a New Testament commandment? We first find tithing mentioned in 
the story of Abraham going to Melchizedek, and because Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, Abraham gave him 10% of the spoil of the battle when he goes and he rescues Lot, and they destroy kings. They take the spoil. He gives 10% to Lot, uh, to uh, Melchizedek after he rescues Lot, rather. And that's the origin of, of tithing as it is in Scripture. In the Old Testament Israel, they actually had three different tithes. Two of them that went to others, one was a tithe for the Levites. Levites had no land. They were not allowed to plow field. In fact, later on, they're criticized and Israel's criticized because the Levites were out plowing fields when the Levites should have been at the temple ministering to the things of God. Tithes were to be given for the Levite so the Levite could live, the priest. But they didn't have a monthly income. So it wasn't like, all right, it's tithing time. We write the monthly check and we hand it to the Levite. No. Tithing was of corn and produce and wine and things that you ate. And all the sacrifices the Levites were to eat of, and that goes far beyond just the bringing of the tithes at harvest time. Tithing was for the provision of the Levites. Further, every three years, there was a tithe for the poor. That means that 10% of what people had in their harvest every three years was to go for the poor. And that's a part of God's law. This is a law, and this is a taxation system, in a nation. And as a part of that nation's constitution, if you will, God ordained that people were to be taxed a certain portion for the poor. And beyond that, for the regular maintenance of the poor, the corners of the field were to be left unharvested so that poor people could come and take from the corners of the field and go back home and eat. God cared for the poor. That was something that I did a little more ranting than preaching about this past Wednesday at a Bible study, but Micah slams that. Amos slams that. as something that God is very concerned with in his word, the poor. And there were laws about it. There is not a New Testament command to tithe. That is to say, give 10% of your food or your wine. Say, what, what did you do with that wine? I gave 10% of it to Brother Ben. Okay. Anyway. There's no command, but there are commands to give sacrificially and encouragements to give sacrificially. There are encouragements to give joyfully for the furtherance of the gospel in the world. So giving is a part of the New Testament, but tithing is not expressly spelled out in the New Testament as a command. Notice very carefully that Jesus does not say, you should not have done this, instead you should have done that. This ye ought to have done and not to leave the other undone. In other words, you should have been doing both. Tithing is fine. Now, of these three, we're talking about the outward show of religion, all of these three are spices that can be used in food. One, cumin was hot. It was like, it, it had the heat of pepper. Mint, of course we all understand what mint is. You, you might have some mints in your purse. You know what flavor comes with mint. But here's a usage of it you may not have realized. In synagogues, it was common to sprinkle mint all around the floor of the synagogue for the fragrance. 
So these people bring 10% of their mint harvest, their herbs, they give it to the synagogue, and as they are engaging in religious worship, the synagogue was structured much like what we have today in the New Testament church. You come in, you hear a message, the elder of the synagogue will MC things, he'll call upon people to read a passage, he'll give a, a lecture from a portion of scripture, they might sing some psalms. It was very similar to what we have. And so people who bring these tithes of mint, they sprinkle it all around in the floor of the synagogue. It's very visible, isn't it? People see that. Imagine in a person's heart, when they're looking at this mint and they smell the aroma in the synagogue and they see the mint, imagine the pride that could swell up in their heart. That was my mint. This place smells good today because of me. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, but why are they driven and geared towards that? Well, perhaps because it was a show. It was a show. Maybe he points, you see that good mint over there? Yeah, 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 smells really good. I brought that today. You can imagine the, the thumbing of the lapels, the clout that this would provide someone, how much attention that they would receive for bringing their mint during the worship experience, everybody would know they'd provided it, and the Pharisees would look on with pride as the odor of the mint floated through the synagogue. Now, Jesus doesn't say that you shouldn't have brought the tithes. He doesn't say you shouldn't worry about the mint in the, in the synagogue. He doesn't say that. He says you should have done that, sure, but there are more important things that you should have done of those, of those, Judgment, proper discernment, mercy, and faith. Whereas Micah says, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I had the thought this morning, right before, and I had to run and look up the passage. Sometimes if you see me run out with my Bible at like 1053, it's because something hit my mind. I can't remember the verse, and I need to find a concordance as quickly as possible. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, the same people he rebuked, the same people he rebuked, here's an example of how they omitted the weightier matters of the law. They said to the disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Matthew's a tax collector. He's sitting at the receipt of custom. He's where they take money from people. We all dread a visit from the IRS, but in this day, these men were known for padding their wallets by taking more than was due. And beyond that, if you were a Jewish man and you were a publican, you had sided with the enemy. You're taking up money for Rome when you're supposed to be praying that they be expelled from Judea. And so the Pharisees, they judge for that. Listen to this statement. I want you to remember this and let it be something that just permeates your mind. When Jesus heard that, he always hears, he always knows. He said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. 
Certainly true. But go to and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You know what Jesus tells them about mercy? Go to and learn what that meaneth. In other words, these Pharisees did not have a clue as to these principles of love and mercy that Jesus was depicting as he calls Matthew the publican and all of these other sinners to him and he sits down with them and he eats with them because he is a physician and they are sick and he is bringing them healing. And the Pharisees are oblivious to it. And he tells them, go to and learn what that means. If there have been a few times in my life when someone was being cruel or harsh or callous or vindictive and the statement enters my mind, go to and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I will have mercy. Go learn what that means, Jesus says. We'll close today the same, in the same epistle that we read from so much over the past few weeks, the book of Ephesians. Finally, mercy is a trait of God as we opened up today with. So being merciful fosters godliness and Christ-likeness in our own lives. Do you want to be like Christ? Then mercy ought to be one of the things that is a part of your day-to-day interactions. Because more than any other trait in his life, mercy was depicted. To sinners, to publicans, to harlots, to lepers, to the blind, to the deaf, to the maimed, He goes about doing good and healing and loving. Jesus was a man of mercy. And so if I want to be like my Savior, what trait do I need to epitomize in my personal life? It needs to be mercy. When we read through Ephesians chapter 2, learning about how we're His workmanship, notice again verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he has loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, as quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. God is what? Well, he's rich in mercy. We're all consumed with riches in money and finances, and we look at celebrities like... It is mind-boggling to know that there are people so rich in our country today that they can fund their own version of NASA. Does that not blow your mind? And now they're in a competition, these rich yahoos, over which one of them gets to go to space first? Which one of them is going to go to the moon first? Which one of them is going to go to Mars first? And half of them you want to say, can you take a few people and stay? Anyway, that's not merciful. I'm so merciful, I'll give them Mars. You can have it. I don't want it. Just go live there. Bye. We look at wealth and we think, oh, man, that guy's got a lot of money. To be rich... In mercy is to be Christ-like, to be rich, to have a bank account overflowing with mercy on reserve. You know, when you're rich, you don't have to worry about running out of money as quickly, do you? If you live check to check, it's like, okay, I don't have a whole lot of reserves to draw from here. But if you're talking about a man with, I don't know, $5 billion in the bank, pretty much anything that happens to you that normal people experience is never a problem. You're living life on a cheat code, to borrow gaming terminology. Just can't hurt you financially. Your car breaks, big deal. You make more money and in interest in a month than you could buy a nice car for. Doesn't matter to somebody like that. God is rich in mercy. 
And so God's mercy and pity moved him to quicken us. We ought to be kind and merciful one to another. We'll close with a simple reading of Ephesians 4.32. Be ye kind. Remember, one definition of mercy was kind. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. If you want to be godly, if you want to be Christ-like, being merciful is the way to get there.